<laughs> what do you say that would be today? No, right. <laughs> good. Well, it's good to be here, isn't it? Good to be worshiping, worshiping God. And uh, today marks the start of a preaching series uh, where we're, it's based on our new vision and values booklet. Most of you will have a copy. I apologize to visitors that you won't have a copy, but you don't actually need it with you today. All right, you don't actually need it. Um, but this booklet uh, really describes um, what it is to be a Christian, uh, what it is to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ, growing as a disciple, and how that's worked out here. It's, it's quite personal in that sense, although um, there's nothing new in it. Lots of churches have something very similar, and in fact we've pinched some bits from other people anyway. Um, why reinvent the wheel, as they say? Um, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's something that um, we feel we want to own um, here. It would be used mainly uh, for people who want to come into membership, and it would be used as part of a, an introductory course. And I think it's important that as people come among us and they say, yes, I want to be really part of this church, that we talk together about our understanding of the gospel and uh, what it means to be a member of the local church, what, what that person can expect, um, and, um, and uh, what we expect of them. So it's quite important that we do that. And I suppose you could describe it as that people need to come in on clear ground. Uh, I have experience um, years ago where there was no overhaul of people who were coming into church life. People just came along, they were accepted as members, and so on. And um, there's nothing unscriptural about that, but one of the problems is that people come with different expectations, and they even come with different agendas. And it seems okay at first, and then suddenly their expectations aren't met, and there can be conflict. So it's useful uh, in those terms. And as I say, you don't need to bring the books with you. I do trust you've had a chance to read them. We won't, it's not an examination, there's no test to see whether you have, but I hope you have. Um, what I want to say is that using the book as a basis for sermons um, in no way puts into question those people who are clearly members here, who may have come some other route. All right? It's not to say, well, at the end of this, you've got to sign up for something uh, to say that you're members. But we thought it would be good for everyone to go through the material, go through what we're teaching so you know what we're saying to new people as they come in. And uh, we're not going to be treating the material on Sundays as we would, say, in a joining class where there's discussion and obviously looking at more scriptures and things. What we hope to do is to give some overviews um, each Sunday, um, picking out some of the key points of the teaching that are contained in each module. So you'll see the sections are called modules. That's a modern way of saying sections, okay? Just thought we'd be ensure that it was up to date. They're modules, okay? Good. Um, today, um, we're, we're covering the first section, which is pages one to four, uh, under the title, Saved and Added. And um, in essence, it's about the Church of Jesus Christ and how we become part of it. And in fact, you could say that the whole of the book uh, is about the church. And I could ask the question, how do you feel about that? We're going to be, one way or another, from different angles, looking again 
at the church. Does that excite you? Are you excited about the fact we're going to be looking at the church? Or does it cause your heart to sink? Oh, not again. Um, I've heard people say, I think Jesus is great, but I'm not sure about the church. But there we are. But um, without a doubt, the topic of the church engenders all sorts of feelings and emotions and ideas and thoughts depending on people's understanding and experience. If we take the proverbial man on the street that we meet with a clipboard and we say, what do you think about the church? If we, as we go through the, the people that we meet, we would get varying answers to that, varying responses. Um, some might be very negative um, and it's so sad that there are people who wreck in childhood at a single incident that involved the church and it turned them off forever. I can remember somebody saying something like this to me. He was about 50. No, I'm going to do with the church. When I was in Sunday school and I came out one day, one of the teachers clipped me around the ear. That's it. No more church. I, I don't want anything to do with that. They're all a load of hypocrites. And, you know, you know the kind of thing that you get. It can be very negative for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, some people can be indifferent about it and say, well, it's pretty outdated, outmoded, it's past its sell-by date, um, hasn't, has very little relevance for um, modern society. Um, yeah, don't think anything of it at all, really. But fortunately, there are those who see um, some good things in the church. And there are many who say, no, I think the church um, makes a good contribution to our society. I like to send my children to Sunday school. I think there's a foundation that goes into their lives. I'm happy to do that. And other people will recognise that the church is often in the forefront, like the Salvation Army, of um, meeting people's needs, helping the poor, um, being in the forefront of disaster relief and that kind of thing. People recognise that. And if they know their history at all, they'll know that uh, schools and hospitals and, of course, the abolition of the slave trade came through people who were a part of the church. And so there are those who can think quite positively, perhaps, about the church. And whilst um, people's views, that's to people outside the church, whilst their views are important and may represent a challenge to us, because we have to say there are times when the church has been misrepresented to the world by its own people. And we could be ashamed of, of some of the history of the church and how it's dealt with people um, outside the church. But for those of us that believe in a sovereign creator God whose idea the church is, the most important question is, what does God think about the church? That's, of course, the most important question. From the scriptures, we see that the church is now central to God's plans and purposes for mankind and for the history of the world. The church is there. It's there right up to the end and through the end, as it were. The church is still there and it's part of uh, God's rescue package for the mess that mankind have made of himself and the world around him. And maybe surprisingly to some, uh, in the Bible, the church is spoken of in the most glorious and exalted terms. You couldn't get more superlatives than that are used about the church. And the church is God's treasured possession, the apple of his eye, and something he sacrificed his very best to bring into being. 
Some examples would be, it's God's church. Right? We find the apostles referring to particular local churches, to the church of God at Corinth. It's God's church from beginning to end. It's not our church. We often think it's our church and we want to exercise our will about it. But it's, we always have to remember it's God's church from first to last. And amazingly, and we get lots of these images from Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, God has chosen to use the church to demonstrate not just to people on earth, but to the heavenly realms, principalities, powers, rulers in the heavenly realm, to demonstrate his wisdom. God's wisdom is demonstrated through the church, and it's talked about his manifold or multicoloured wisdom uh, is, is demonstrated through the church. You think, goodness me, how can that be? Well, the particular incident or the instance that is being spoken of there is how two people who seem to be irreconcilable can be reconciled, Jews and Gentiles. Nothing could bring them together. But the angels perhaps look on and say, amazingly, God has managed to bring Jews and Gentiles together, to break down the division, to bring peace to them. And how did he do it? By causing the Jews to believe and the Gentiles to believe, to become one new people, a new tribe in Christ. And there it is. All the barriers are broken down. All the hostility is gone. And God says, this is my multicoloured wisdom. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. David rightly said earlier in communion that our salvation is personal. Christ died for me. And the Apostle Paul said, who wrote these very words, he said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. So salvation is very personal, but it's not individualistic. And we find that Jesus died for a people as well. He died for the church. God has always wanted a people for himself, not isolated individuals, but a people for himself. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's ultimate rule and authority will be with the church or even for the church. We, again in Ephesians, we read that Christ will be head over all one day. His rule and reign will be seen. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's for the church. It says he will be head over all for the church. What does that mean, I wonder? Well, I believe that the church will be at his side, metaphorically, you like, sharing in his glory and sharing in his rule and reign in the age to come. And it's for the church. The church is the eternal companion that God has chosen for his son. If you know the scriptures, you know how much the father loves the son. Jesus made reference to that. The father loves the son, the son loves the father. Perfect love in the Godhead there. What gift could the father who loves his son give to his son? The answer is the church. It's the church becomes the bride of Christ and the bride is presented to the bridegroom Jesus as the most wonderful thing that he could ever have. I just think about all these different things. We've only just touched on it. But, but how glorious and exalted does the church seem to be uh, in God's eyes? So why the contrast then between what many people see and experience of the church with what apparently God sees and delights in? There seems to be a difference here, doesn't there? When we read those things, and if you've read those things to somebody outside the church, they say, mm, 
Never seen any of that. I don't understand that at all. You know, it's not what I know of the church. So why? Well, first of all, we must be clear on our definition of the church. Uh, On our introductory page in the booklet, there is a statement. Church is not what we do. Church is what we are. It's what we are. Understandably, the world makes at large makes its judgments of the church on what it sees and what it experiences. And what it sees, uh, we could call the visible church. The visible church. Either worldwide, uh, because we know the church is in every nation nearly now, um, it's worldwide, um, with many, many different styles and expressions. And clearly, it's an imperfect church. No matter where you look, however good it is, we can see that it's imperfect. So that's the visible church. Right. Now the problem is that at any one time or place, the church is a mixture. It's made up of those who are qualified and added by God to it, and those who are not. That's the issue. It's made up of that mixture. But God sees what we might call the invisible church or the perfect church, made up of only those who are uniquely qualified by him, not by any merit of their own, but by God himself as an act of grace. And this church that God sees, he sees as perfect. We see the imperfect church, but what God sees is perfect, and it's made up of those that he has added to it. Let me make it clear, there's no one denomination, local group, local church that can claim to have the monopoly uh, on the true church or the invisible church to say, well, all of us here are what God sees as the perfect church. We can never claim that, certainly not over a period of time. Um, At times we like to think that we've got a good handle on things or we've got a monopoly on the truth and it does remind me of the fact that some years ago I read about a church in America um, really, some really good things come out of America, incidentally, about the church, but one or two wacky things sometimes. And um, this was a, a church that uh, wanted to make itself distinctive because it really felt it was the true church. So it put a sign up outside and it said, the true Jesus church. Well, people around the corner, the church around the corner, didn't want to be outdone, so they put up a sign that said, the true, true Jesus Church. Okay. But it's a misunderstanding because we, none of us, no church has a complete monopoly uh, on, on the truth. Uh, we are uh, always seeking the truth by God's Holy Spirit. But. So there. So Now this difference between the visible church and the invisible church is not a problem for God. God doesn't find that a problem. Uh, Jesus made it clear in his parables Um, If you can think back to our study of Matthew, we have the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Years ago it was called wheat and tares. But wheat and the weeds, where the farmer, he sows wheat in his field, but the devil comes along and he sows weeds in the field. And the workers, they want to root out the weeds. And the farmer says, no, 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 if you pull them out now, you'll pull out the wheat along with it. Let both grow together and when the harvest comes, which represents the end of the age, The angels will come and they'll gather up the weeds and throw them in the fire and the wheat will be gathered into the barn. And um, so we don't need to go weeding around in the visible church 
trying to root out those that we think don't belong. Right? That's not our place to do that. Those that we think are not true believers. God will do that at the end of the age. But rather we let both grow together, like it says uh, in the parable, and uh, we trust, we hope, that those who are not yet believers will soon uh, qualify according to God's purposes. One purpose of our book uh, is to help those who are seeking membership to understand what uniquely qualifies them. Uh, first of all, to be part of God's universal church, which we've already mentioned. And there's a definition of that in the book on page three from Wayne Grudem, who says the church, that's everybody, is the community of all true believers for all time. But having become part of the universal church, the way God qualifies us, and we'll see what that is in a moment, then we have to find expression for that in what we call the local church. And this is the local church that we're gathered in today. Let me say at this point that um, we wholeheartedly welcome anyone who wants to participate in our community in one way or another. Um, whether or not they think they're Christians, whether they're not sure, whether they know they are. Um, our arms, as it were, are wide. We want to welcome people into our community, whether it's on Sundays during the week or whether it's in worship or just socially. But we have to recognise that Jesus said most people are travelling on a broad way, but it's only a narrow way that leads to eternal life. And our earnest desire is that as people come among us, they will learn what that narrow way is and that they will find eternal life among us. So I trust that we are able to be wide in our welcoming of people, still understanding that narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. So what's the unique God-given qualification for being a genuine member of the Church of Jesus Christ? Well, it starts with God's divine initiative. And on page one we quote that God loves us enough to have planned the ultimate rescue mission all along. And central to that mission is the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes it clear that everyone needs to be rescued, right? We're all drowning, um, we're all in peril unless God rescues us. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of his glory and we're all subject to God's wrath. That would be the outcome unless we were rescued. And it's the consequences of our sin and rebellion. And just a couple of scriptures that underline this fact that Jesus came to rescue. He came on a rescue mission. For mankind. This is Galatians, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So Jesus rescues us from the corruption of the world. But there's a, an ultimate rescue and this is Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Right? So we all need rescuing. We need rescuing. But there's a wonderful miracle that's bigger than that. Right? It's not only that we're saved from the consequences of our sin, but God does a transforming miracle in our lives in response to our faith in what he has done in Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
It's a miracle that makes us brand new people and puts us into a brand new relationship with God, here and now, not just in the future, but here and now. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, that means if anyone is the true believer of Jesus, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And I think this miracle is a bit like a diamond. You know, a big diamond, it has various faces, facets. And as you turn it, you see something brilliant again and, and again and again as you turn it. It's, it's a wonderful diamond, but it has so many facets. And I believe what God has done for us in Jesus has a number of different facets. And each one is worthy of a huge study. It's so wonderful. And we can you'll see many of those on page one. But there are things like that we are born again by the Spirit of God. Uh, we've been born naturally into this world, but we're dead to God. Our spirits are dead and they need to be enlivened by God. And God causes us to be born again by the Spirit of God so that we can actually see and participate in the kingdom of God. We're also reconciled to God. That's another aspect, another facet of this wonderful diamond. We are reconciled to God. We were once enemies of God. Two opposites, our sinful nature, our sinfulness and our behaviour, and a holy God. How do you reconcile the two? God reconciled us by the death of Jesus because he took the punishment that was due to us and in exchange gave us his righteousness. And we are now reconciled to God. We are adopted into his family. Many people like to think of themselves as children of God just because they're human beings. But the Bible makes it clear that we only really become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. By receiving him as Lord and Saviour, then we are declared to be children of God. And we could go on, but that's more for the study when perhaps we look through the book itself. And the New Testament teaching uh, on these, the glories of these fa- facets is amazing. Um, the, the apostles, uh, they just love to talk about the wonders of what God has done in salvation. But there's one word that's frequently used to sum up this miracle, and it's the word saved. We are saved. And all those facets are included in in what we mean by being saved. Hence the, the title of the first section, Saved and Added. And the connection between being saved and being part of the church is illustrated by what happened on the day of Pentecost. Let me just remind you, um, uh, if you're very familiar with that, forgive me for reminding you, but in case um, some are not too sure, you remember that when Jesus was crucified, it was a Jewish feast called the Passover. So Jesus was crucified at that time, and later three days he rose from the dead. And then he met with his disciples and he told them, he wanted them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. They would receive... Uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they would be his witnesses. So, dutifully, the, the disciples waited in Jerusalem. And it was 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost, which is another Jewish feast, that the Holy Spirit came upon them uh, in a, an amazing way. Tongues of fire, it said, came upon them. And they began to speak in other languages. And they burst out on the street, and the people thought they were drunk. But Peter stands up and he explains what's happening. He said, no, this is what the prophets foretold. But then he goes on to preach Jesus to them. He begins to tell them about their responsibility in the death of Jesus. And he finishes up by saying, 
And this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And I guess it was through the Holy Spirit the people came under conviction. They came under deep conviction of sin. And they said to Peter, what shall we do? What, how can we escape? How can we be rescued from the, the plight that we're now in, having crucified the Messiah? And Peter says, repent, which means to change your mind and your attitude and your whole way of life. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they respond to what now Peter has preached about Jesus, that he is the Messiah and that they can trust in him. And from that time on, when people came to faith in Jesus, they were baptised as a sign that they had repented of sin and that they had received Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And it would seem through the New Testament, whenever people uh, believed, they were baptised right there and then, or if it had been missed, the apostles would come and catch them up and say, you need to be baptised in the name of Jesus. So that's what happened. And um, what we find is that later on in his letters, Paul explains the, the deeper meanings of what baptism is about. So baptism isn't just about me declaring publicly that I belong to Jesus. It illustrates, it pictures something absolutely amazing. And Paul tells us that in baptism we identify with Jesus. As Jesus died and was buried, we need to die to our old life. Our old life needs to be buried. And baptism, people going down into the water demonstrates or represents being, being buried. The old life is buried. And just as Jesus was raised to new life on the third day, we come out of the water sharing that new life of Jesus. And uh, in the book, we go into that in more depth. But I just thought I'd mention that because baptism has those deeper meanings. But it was for every believer. It was for every believer. But little... Continuing with Peter's uh, preaching, it says, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,120 at the end of the day, maybe, if the number was right. And a little later on we read, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we read from then on that they became an amazing community. People, maybe some of them didn't know one another, they came from different parts uh, around Jerusalem, but they became a, a wonderful, loving, devoted community, looking after one another, looking after one another's needs, and so on. Absolutely. And very characteristic of a family. And you could say that here was when the church was born. This was the real uh, visible beginning of the church when the church was born. And it's, um, we have to note that it's God who did the work. God saved them and then God added people. People were saved by God and they were added by God. Just to read it again. And the Lord added to their number, in other words to the church, daily those who were being saved. So the qualification was to be saved but then God added them to the church which means we cannot add ourselves to the church unless we qualify. We have to cooperate with what God is doing, of course. It was abundantly clear from the outset that individualistic Christianity was not 
and never would be part of God's plan for believers. Our Christian life begins, as we've already said, by being born again. And we're born again like little babies down here. Here's my visual aid. Thank you for the visual aid. And just as babies need to grow and mature, don't you? Yeah, thank you. Babies need to grow and mature, so do we as Christians. We start off literally like babies, because we are like newborn babes uh, as we come to faith. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to gradually mature us. And that maturity means that we become more and more like Jesus. That's, and it's called in the Bible sanctification. That's the big word for it. But it's the work of the Spirit in us, making us more like Jesus. And the primary context for this, the environment that God has chosen to make this happen or to enable this to happen, is the church. The church is the soil that new believers are planted in and it's the best place uh, for them to grow. And most of the New Testament teaching on discipleship is about learning to live with other believers. And as we do that, God is able to knock off the rough edges in our lives and begin to conform us to Christ. And it's here that we put aside our independence and selfishness and we learn to submit to one another. All right? It says, out of reverence for Christ, we submit to one another, we serve one another, we forgive one another, we encourage one another, and above all, we love one another deeply. That's God's plan. God's plan is not for individualistic Christianity. Well, if we opt out of being wholeheartedly involved in the local church, which includes accepting being accountable to other people. Naturally, um, we don't want to be accountable to other people. But being part of a local church means I can't just do it on my own. I need to be accountable to others. And if we opt out, then we deny the Holy Spirit the greatest opportunity to form Christ in us. We need the local church to grow. It's so, so important. Also, we cannot express the unity that Jesus prayed for. And we read about it in John 17, just before he was crucified. You know that wonderful prayer. And he's praying for the believers. And he says, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one so that the world might know that you sent me. See, the opposite of that, if we fail to discover that unity, if we fail to put ourselves out uh, to work out that unity, then we are denying that God sent the Son into the world. Because that unity is possible because we're in Christ and because the Holy Spirit helps us. But we need to cooperate with that and say, I will expose myself to this environment. I will be part, wholeheartedly part of a local church. And it may be costly sometimes, but it's absolutely worth it because I want the world to know that Jesus, uh, God sent Jesus into the world. And the unity that we talk about is not people of the same kind. We're not necessarily from the same social background, from the same intelligence and the same anything else. You know, and um, it's, it's not people with the same interests. It's all diverse people who find their unity in Christ. And just like I mentioned between Jew and Gentile, God is able to 
by the Spirit to break down the barriers. And people that never thought that they would be friends or love one another absolutely find that in church life. People that are at the other end of the social spectrum, if you want to call it, actually find that there's a wonderful unity in the local church. And it's because of their devotion to Jesus that they've learnt, down, learnt to break down the barriers that cause suspicion and fragment our society. I don't know if you've met them, but there are those people who say, um, yeah, I love Jesus and I know I'm part of the church generally, but I don't feel any need to be committed to a local church fellowship. I'd, I'd rather just float. Um, you know, I go here one week, there another week, and, and so on. And I don't really need to be part of a local church to be a Christian. Now, there is a truth there, of course. Just your being part of a local church doesn't make you Christian. And there are some people, not through choice, who are denied that privilege of being part of a local church. They might be missionaries in a very remote area and there are no other Christians. Or um, they may be persecuted Christians who um, are in prison for their faith. But they would not choose that. They would not choose that. And as far as the New Testament is concerned, individualistic Christianity is never an option. It's never an option. And uh, the people who um, want to follow this way often say, it's Jesus and me. It's all about Jesus and me. I don't need other people. It's about Jesus and me. But that's not what Jesus said about it. It's not what the apostles said about it. We do need one another. And um, I suspect that the people who express that um, are probably an expressing, expressing an ungodly independence that has no purpose uh, in God's plans. There's no place in God's plans. So we need to think about that. Why, if we resist, if we resist being wholeheartedly involved in local church life, being committed, being counted on, um, being reliable in church life, um, Deep down, we might put some gloss on it and say, well, it's just I hear from God, I don't need these people. But actually, it's probably expressing an independence uh, that says, I want to do things my way um, and I don't want to be subject to anybody else's ideas or whatever. So it has no place. Good. So then, saved and added, I hope you see that they're both works of God. We are saved by God's grace. It's his initiative. We are saved by his grace. And if we are saved, then God then adds us to this company of people that are called the church. Worldwide, but we have to find expression to that locally. We cannot save ourselves, but we can respond with faith in what God has done in Christ to deal with our sin and make us fit to be his children and fit to be part of his church. So in all sorts of ways, we can be part of the visible church. I made that point. We want to be wide in our welcoming of people, and people can be part of the visible church. But to be part of the invisible church, or the true church, to be part of God's glorious plan for the ages, and I hope you caught some of that from the, the things that we talked about, to be joined to his son forever, to be part of the celebration at the end of the age, when Jesus is united with his bride, the bridegroom, as he welcomes his bride to share in the new heavens and the new earth, God has to qualify us. We can't get involved in that any other way than being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we're part of that. The Bible says our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. 
I think that's a wonderful place to be. I mean, with all the terrible things that are going on in the world, some we can see what the root is, others we just do not understand. And um, people's hearts are failing them for fear. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can be secure in God? And all those things that are promised for the church in the end times, we can be part of. Absolutely, 100% part of it. Wonderful. And uh, God does all that is necessary through our faith, in response to our faith, to make that possible. As we close, I just want to kind of broadly address two types of people that may be represented here, I don't know. Maybe you know that you're saved. You've been saved for a long time. Uh, You walk with God. um, You have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. um, You're absolutely convinced you have an assurance of your salvation. You know that you're saved on the right basis because it's through faith in Jesus. You know those things, but for some reason or other, um, you've just held off a little in committing yourself wholeheartedly to the local church. Now, there are different ways of expressing that, of course. But one way we would suggest is that you actually formally come into membership in the local church. You go through the process that that, that the um, Vision and Values booklet was uh, meant to serve, right? That you, you do all you can to say, yes, I am part of this church, and for the foreseeable future, until God moves me on, I'm committed here. I'm part of this church and, I, and I, I want you to know that. I want you to know I'm part of it. Now, if that's you, why not? Why not have that wholehearted commitment? Why hold off um, from membership? And some, some do. Maybe there are good reasons that I don't know about and, and uh, I'm sure you'll tell me if that's the case. But why hold off from that? So maybe God is saying to you today, this is my glorious church. Why, why hold back? Why not give yourself wholeheartedly to my purposes through the church. It may be that you've been part of the visible church, that you've enjoyed the services, you've enjoyed being part of the church, but you don't have an assurance of salvation. If, as we have often said, if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? You're not sure what you'd say, that you don't have an assurance uh, that you're saved. Uh, even though you've been part of the visible church, as it were. Well, you can settle that today because it is merely putting your faith in Jesus Christ and saying, he is my righteousness. He is the only qualification that I can ever have uh, to to, um, have a promise of heaven, have a promise of eternal life. He is the only one. It's his righteousness that I need to claim through faith. Well, if that's the case, why not do it today? So that, as far as we know, and we're all saved and we're all part of God's true church, the church that he loves and cherishes, the church that may be invisible in some respects, but is visible to him and that he loves and cherishes it. So I'll leave that with you to think about. Let's pray and when we're, we'll close. Father, we do recognise that our ways are not your ways. Your ways are not our ways, Lord. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You understand things that are far too lofty for us to understand. But we thank you for the things that have been revealed. And your word says the things that have been revealed 
belong to us. What you've chosen to hold to yourself belong to you. But Lord, you have revealed to us that it is possible to escape the corruption of this world uh, and to have confidence on the day of judgment to be part uh, of your plan through the church to be the eternal companion for Jesus in the age to come. Father, as we look at that, it's amazing. Why should you choose us? Why should you choose people that have let you down, that have shaken our fist at you? Why should you do it? It's because of your love. And Lord, you've told us that we can't prepare ourselves, we can't make ourselves fit to be part of the bride of Christ, but you're willing to do it, and you've done it through the death of Jesus. So Father, we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, we want to give ourselves wholeheartedly to this. Lord, this is the plan for the ages. This is your glorious plan. Jesus is coming back for his church. Lord, we want to give ourselves wholeheartedly to serving Jesus right here and now through the local church. And Father, we ask you that you'll fill us again with your Holy Spirit, that we may have the same zeal that Jesus had, that we may look forward to that day with the joy that he looked forward to it. And Father, that we may live now to the praise of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.